And uh, what is happening? You good? Okay. Uh, so four times they send him this. The fifth time they send him a very similar letter, except for in the text it says it's an open letter. And what that means and what he's recording for us is anyone who saw this letter could read it then. You know, they used to stamp a seal on there to keep it closed and they would know that then it hasn't been opened. So he sends an open letter through the couriers and through the town. Basically, it's, it's a modern day Twitter feed and he wants everybody to know the gossip that's going on, okay? So he sends this letter and he says that uh, it's reported among all these people and even Geshem, whoever Geshem is, you know, he reports it too, that basically you're trying to become the king. You're building these walls so that you can rebel against King Artaxerxes. Remember, he was a cupbearer, and he loves Artaxerxes. Artaxerxes cares for him, and so he gives him this privilege of coming down after a certain amount of time and, and all that stuff, if, if you remember back to, to chapter 1. He said, it's reported among the nations that you're going to prop yourself up. You also have to remember, they're, they're still looking for this Davidic king fulfillment, right? And so he's saying, we're going to tell the king. We're going to go back and we're going to tell King Artaxerxes that you really came to set yourself up as king and that's the reason you're building these walls and all this kind of stuff. And Nehemiah basically tells him in verse 8, he says, no such thing as you say has been done for you inventing them out of your... He says, you're just making them up. You're just, you're just making these things up. Um, and then he says, for they, they knew that what they were doing was to harm us. He says, their hope was that our hands will drop from our work and it will not be done. So the whole goal of all these letters was to throw them off the work that they were called to do so that they would stop doing the work that God has called them to. And so he prays that God would strengthen his hands. And so we must be steadfast despite public hostility. And so I want to ask you, what is your resolution this morning? Not New Year's resolution. I mean, are you a resolute person? Could you honestly, and, and, and we want to nod and we want to say yes and we want to say amen here, but there is a day, beloved, there is a day coming where you will have to, for lack of better terminology, put your money where your mouth is and, and, and maybe truly putting your money where your mouth is. As, as the world around us continues to make laws and change and move farther and farther away from where it was founded, uh, and this should not be a surprise to you, it was written in the Gospels, it's written in the other New Testament scriptures, that this world as a whole is going to continue to unravel and get more and more depraved and turn back to the days of Noah where everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And so the question I have for you is, how resolute are you? Are you able, are you willing to be steadfast despite public influence? political unpopularity for the tide of humanity is ever rushing against us as Christians against those who are in positions of influence you see during this time as he mentions Tobiah and Geshem and Sanballat those were all political figures who had positions of influence as we're going to read in the text well we're not going to read that because I don't have time to cover it but Tobiah had marriage had intermarried his way into these political powers. It wasn't about what you know, it's about who you know back then, right? And so we need to understand our enemy. We need to understand our enemy both politically and physically, but also the real enemy behind it. The real enemy, as we talked about just a little bit ago, isn't politics, it's, it's Satan. It's the demonic forces, it's the principalities and the powers. That everyone who is not freed through Christ Jesus is a puppet, 
And instead of being upset with them, we should actually pity them for they, they know not what they are doing, Scripture talks about. They're just blindly being a puppet and a pawn in the game that Satan is playing, which is a losing game, and we know that, but in his pomp, he doesn't believe that. And so we have to know our enemy. Uh, Nehemiah knew his enemy. He knew the condition of their heart. He knew what they were really seeking to do. He knew that, yeah, you're giving me these letters and you want to say you want to have a council with me, but what you really want is probably uh, to Cain and Abel me out in the field. That's probably really what you want. And he also knew that what you really want is for me to, to leave the work because we don't know this because we're Westerners and we don't have a good geography and stuff like that. But this, this plane of, oh no, I think it's interesting that it was called, oh no, like that's what Nehemiah, oh no, you know, but anyway. So they want to take him out on this plane. And what we don't understand is that it was, it was probably a couple days journey to get there. Then they'd have the meeting and it was a couple days journey. So he's going to leave, lose a, a half a week of work on this wall, and we're going to see in just a minute why that's going to matter a lot, and why he says, no, I, I can't. And notice in the text, too, we, we, have to, we have to understand the depth of our work. And you say, well, I'm not in ministry. Well, yeah, yeah, you are. If you're a Christian, you're in full-time ministry. And so we have to understand the depth of our work, and so Nehemiah gives a good answer because he understands the enemy, he understands what they want, and so his response is, I'm doing a great work here. And this is not his pride. Nehemiah isn't just some prideful saying, hey, check out the work that I'm doing. No, no, no. He's saying, no, this is, this is work for the Lord. And so what's your resolve, but also what work are you doing? Is it great work? Do you understand that the work that you're doing is great work? I, I mean, let me put some legs on this for you. Sometimes, I know Elisa, I think, sometimes struggles with well, I'm just a stay-at-home mom. And I'm like, babe, that is a great work. You are doing something that nobody else is qualified to do in this entire world. Do you know why? Because you are those babies' mom. Nobody else can fit that. And if you've been here for any length of time, you know that I could not do what I do without her. And so whether you are a stay-at-home mom whether you are a mechanic, whether you're retired, whether you are a doctor or a lawyer, whether you're a full-time missionary, or whatever it is that you do, if you do it for Christ, you have to understand that the work that you are doing is great work. But I also want to encourage you in this, good is the enemy of great. And so I, I want to encourage you not to simply rest on some of the great work that you've done either in the past that you're being encouraged by, by the Holy Spirit, but look forward to not allowing just simply good work to get in the way of great work. So why was his wall great? It wasn't because Nehemiah was great, not because he was the cupbearer to Artaxerxes, but because he was building this wall for the people of God, for the purposes of God, by the will of God, through the strength of God, right? And so how should we respond we should respond just like Nehemiah did. So we must be steadfast despite public hostility, and we do that by being like our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So here's to save you from flipping all through your Bible, Matthew 19, 2 through 3, and a large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. And the Pharisees came up and they said to him, testing, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? And you know the reason they were doing this. Their reason that they were doing this was not because they cared truly about divorce, 
They wanted to put him to public shame. And Jesus responds with the Bible. He responds with correcting them. He responds with taking them to Scripture. Jesus responds in a way that he is able to stand and be steadfast even during public hostility. Another time, which we, we won't turn there, but in John 8, says that he came to the Mount of Olives, he came to the temple and all the people were there and he sat down and he's beginning to teach them. And then the scribes and the Pharisees came. They found a woman who was in the act of adultery and they were putting him to the test again and again. He withstood public hostility by being steadfast. This is a really cool one. Drew in the back is going to click through as I read with you, but I want you to follow along. This is in Philippians 1, 12 through 20. If you're a note taker, you can jot this down. But I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. See, maybe sometimes the most important thing you can do, the greatest work that you can do is simply be steadfast in the face of public hostility. This whole empirical guard, they heard about this and he, they knew as he was imprisoned for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Do you understand that because Paul was steadfast in public hostility, it like fire lit the hearts of other Christians that would then also be steadfast in the midst of public hostility? And so some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry. But I paraphrase, he says, but I don't care. Do you know why? Because Christ is still being preached. So I don't care if their motives are wrong so long as Christ's still being preached. He says they're doing this out of uh, selfish ambition, not sincerely. But they seek to actually inflict him in his imprisonment. Verse 18, what then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in that I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice. For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. And so we must be steadfast despite public hostility, but we also, we must be steadfast despite private hostility. You see, there's lots of glory in being steadfast in public hostility, but there's, it's actually a lot harder to be steadfast during private hostility, isn't it? If you look at Nehemiah, this section 10 verse 14, through that next section there, uh, he goes to the house, and I'm going to probably butcher this name, uh, but the, the best of my ability to pronounce it, Shemaiah. He goes to this prophet or this holy man or this priest, where we don't exactly know by the text, but he goes to the house of this individual who was confined to their house, and scripture doesn't tell us why. Um, there's all kinds of theories out there by commentators, but they're unhelpful and they don't really regard the text much so for whatever reason he was there and this is what he says if you look it says let us meet together in the house of God within the temple let us close the doors of the temple for they are coming to kill you they are coming to kill you by night that's a scary statement and so what this person is proposing is let's flee let's fall to the mercy seat 
It, it's actually, in, you would think at face value, this is a good thing to do. Like, who can help us? Where does my help come from? From the Lord, right? I look to, the, I look to him to be my deliverer. I look for him to be my vindication. And so this is natural, right? Let's go to the temple. Let's shut the doors. Let's, let's go to God. But what he says in response is, should a man such as I run away? And what man such as I can go into the temple and live? I will not go. And he says he understood and saw that God had not sent him. Why? Because you don't get to just go into the temple. That's why the, that's why the priests wore bells on their garments. Do you know that? Because they would listen for the bells to stop ringing. And if they stop ringing, it means God struck them dead. And so they dragged them out by the cord that they had tied around their waist. And they just dragged this dead body out of the Holy of Holies. Because at this time, before Jesus, you just don't get to go into the temple. God is too holy to gaze upon our sinfulness. And so Nehemiah, who is there, understood this. And he says, first of all, I'm supposed to be the leader of all of Israel. I'm supposed to be the governor of this. I'm supposed to be in charge of this task. And now when the going gets tough, you think that I'm going to get going? No, I'm going to stay. I'm going to see this through. And so the question I have for you is, uh, I guess the question that Nehemiah might have been asking, or that this man might have been asking Nehemiah, who are you behind closed doors? You see, this person was in their house, and they were shut in their house. And Nehemiah went to their house, and I'm guessing they shut the doors to their house. And he says, why don't you go into the temple and then shut the doors there? Where, by the way, nobody can see what you do. I think it's way harder to be steadfast despite private hostility. When we're alone with our own thoughts. So does your public talk match your private walk? For Nehemiah, he sought for it too. He says the reason that he was told to do this. It says that this prophet, this priest, this whoever this was, was hired by his enemies to give him this message so that he would, in verse 13, be afraid and act in a way and sin. And why? So that they could give him a bad name in order to taunt him. But there's much more at stake than just our name. There's the name of Christ. And do not be deceived. Your sins will always find you out. We know myriads of public figures who had private sin that came out either after their death or before their death and completely ruined a ministry. And so when the personal attacks start, are you ready to stand? I also want to point in this text, it really doesn't matter who's saying it. If it goes against God's word, it's wrong. And so the way that we stand during private hostility is by knowing the Bible, is by knowing God's will. I want to show you in, in Matthew 4.1, Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And he was there by himself. Well, I mean, the devil was there, I guess, too. But the devil's job, the devil's goal in this was to tempt Jesus. And the only way that through private hostility Jesus stayed true was because he knew Scripture. He quoted back Scripture. Private hostility requires private strength. I want you to be encouraged this morning. Hebrews 4, 14 through 16. Drew's going to 
click through. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. So let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. It would be wrong for me to sugarcoat Christianity and for me to tell you, and I hope nobody has ever told you this, Christianity, oh well, let, let, me, let me back up. Christianity is just a thing. A relationship with Jesus is what you need. Okay? So if you're here this morning and you say, well, I'm a Christian, the question I have for you is, do you have a relationship with Jesus Christ? Because there's public religion, which is Christianity. People show up on Sundays, we sing songs, we take crackers and juice, and then you know, we go home and, and whatever, right? We, we hang things on our wall or we post things on our Facebook. That, that's religion, possibly. That's Christianity, right? But do you have a relationship with Jesus Christ? Because public hostility, and then there's private hostility. And private hostility needs a private relationship. And so I would be lying to you if I said, hey, if you come to Jesus, your life is going to be changed, absolutely, but, but it's also, it's going to get harder in some respects. It's going to get easier in that you can put away that guilt and that shame and that regret. You can lay that at the cross, but it's going to get harder in that now your eyes are opened to all the sin in your life and all the temptation that comes before you. And we are going to have to come to this throne of grace and find mercy in our time of need because we're going to need it a lot. But that doesn't excuse us from this. From the call that God has put on us that Nehemiah is doing, we we must be steadfast despite private hostility and despite public hostility. And Nehemiah shows us that. And and I want to encourage you this morning because, because this is weighty, right? Matthew 24, 13 says, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. Well, we must be steadfast in these two areas. And so I want to show you that we, uh, we can be steadfast because God is steadfast through the undertaking with his people. So Nehemiah, if you go back to 15 and 16 there, he ends that section. He says, we finished on the 25th day of the month of Elu, and and then in the text it says, 52 days. There are scholars who write commentaries about this, and they say, this must be wrong. And I want to just simply say to those scholars who have PhDs and who know different languages and stuff, he created the entire universe in seven days, bro. What's 52? I mean, give me a break, you know? Uh, I'm, I'm sure that God was in this, and this is what Nehemiah says. He says all their enemies, when they heard of it, they, they were afraid, they fell greatly in their own esteem. They now doubted their power against this kind of God that for over 100 years, right, they were in exile. The, wars, the, the walls were torn down, and in 52 days, Nehemiah comes in, and they raise the walls again. He says, they perceived that this work had been accomplished with the help of our God. See, Nehemiah had a weighty task, and he knew that. And Nehemiah had a bunch of tasks. Remember, we're only halfway through the book of Nehemiah. Nehemiah has other steps to take. But he also understood when God was in the work with him. And so for 52 days, he does not lose heart, and you should not lose heart either. Hard is not impossible, hard is just hard. 
And we can do hard things because our God is steadfast through the undertaking with his people. Amen? And so Nehemiah, think of his perspective. In chapter 2, verse 8, he says, the good hand of God is upon him. In chapter 2, verse 12, he says uh, that God has put this in his heart for Jerusalem. In 2, verse 20, he says the God of heaven would make them prosper. In 4.15, he talks about how God had frustrated the plans of the enemy. In 4.20, he says that God would fight for them. And now he says the work has been done with the help of God. So do not underestimate what you can accomplish with God working in you, on you, through you. You can be steadfast privately and publicly because God is steadfast in the undertaking with you. So I want to ask you, where are you most tempted to doubt this truth? Because I'm tempted to doubt this truth sometimes. I need my brothers to encourage me. I need my sisters to pray for me. So where are you tempted to doubt this truth? Uh, Where have you historically doubted this truth that hindered God to actually do the work through you or being completed by you because you fell to this truth? This is the same story. This is the same thing that Jesus tells his, his apostles, isn't it? He said to them, why are you afraid, O you of little faith? Then he rose and rebuked the winds and the sea. And there was a great calm. Another place, he he, uh, immediately reached out his hand, took hold of him, saying, O you of little faith, why did you doubt? And pulled him up on top of the waves again. Or this, be aware of it, said, O you of little faith, why are you discoursing among yourselves the fact that you have no bread? And then he fed thousands of people. You see, Jesus teaches us the same thing that Nehemiah teaches here. God is steadfast through these undertakings with you. So we can remain steadfast because God is steadfast. And you might say, well, maybe that was just for the apostles. No, that's for you too, because he says, and he invites you this morning, come to me, all you who are labor, who are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. He doesn't say there's no burden. He doesn't say cast off any yoke and just run wild and free, skipping through the forest. No, he says, there's a yoke for you. It's my yoke. Come and learn from me. I'm going to walk alongside you. And there is a burden, but it's a light burden because I'm carrying most of it. But you need to learn that from me, Jesus says. And then maybe this, you know, write this on the wall, put it on the mirror, put it on the refrigerator, I would say tattoo it on your arm or something, but I know we've got some, you know, I don't want to cause you to stumble, so whatever you think about tattoos or whatever. I'm sure of this. Are you sure of this? Paul's sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. So God is steadfast through the undertaking with his people, and that's not enough because he's actually steadfast after the undertaking with people. Nehemiah shows us that too, and so does Jesus, and I want to tell you about it today. This is the last of our four points here for this. Then God put it into my heart. So this is, we're now in chapter seven. So after the wall is built, God has been faithful through all of that undertaking. Remember I just said we're only halfway through the book of Nehemiah, so there's going to be more. Because here's the thing, Nehemiah went to go build the wall. He could have said, oh, the last stone's in place, the last door and bar's in place, 
you know, scrape off the dirt, I'm done, wash my hands, going back to be a cupbearer. I had a cushy life there. I was at the arm of the king. No more of this ridiculousness where people are trying to kill me and whatever. And the wall's up. I'm out of here. I'm done. But Nehemiah takes a moment to look at the accomplishments God has done through him to the people of Jerusalem. He takes a moment to rejoice in that, but he also says, but there's more steps to go. And so he understands that God is faithful after the undertaking with people too. And he says, God put it into his heart to assemble the nobles and the officials of the people to be enrolled by genealogy. And I found the book of the genealogy of those who came up at first, and I found written in it, verse 6 of chapter 7. If you're looking for where I'm at, that's where I'm at. Verse 6 of chapter 7. These were the people of the providence who came up out of the captivity of those exiles whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried into exile. They returned to Jerusalem and Judea, each to his own town. And then he ends, if you want to scroll down, and there's a lot of different names, and there's a lot of different numbers, and there's a lot of different stuff there. And I know what you're thinking, man, this is so boring. No, rejoice in that, because what God is doing is he's recording every single tear that was shed. That's what's represented there. Every single tear of every single family who was brought out of the promised land into Nebuchadnezzar's territory because they were unfaithful. God is always faithful. God is steadfast through this, and he's steadfast after this by bringing them back. And in verse 73 of chapter 7, it says, And in the seventh month they had come, and the people of Israel were in their own towns. And God had wiped away every tear of every eye, and he had made it all understand for them in that time. Nehemiah understood that this was not the end. As we're going to see through the rest of this chapter, Nehemiah, there's more work to be done. And so I want to ask you, where are you most tempted to rest on your past accomplishments and slack at moving forward into maturity? Because we all have those. But I also want to ask you, how do you measure your spiritual milestones? Are you keeping track of your spiritual milestones? Have you set for yourself any personal spiritual goals? What are your next steps, O Christian? I don't even think we think this way. A lot of times, myself included. I just kind of meander through faith and just hope that God's doing things in me. But shouldn't we, couldn't we be setting active goals, actively praying for certain things to be manifest in our lives, that the Spirit would actively be working in certain areas of our lives to conform us and make us more like Christ? Do we not have scriptures to claim and hold to as promises? I believe that we do. And so Jesus shows his disciples this too. He presented himself to them alive by many proofs, appearing to them for 40 days. This was right after he was crucified and resurrected. Can you imagine these apostles who at this point are thinking, it's over, we've wasted our lives, three years, this was horrible. Think of stupid Peter for just a minute, right? Jesus, I've given up everything. I've walked away from everything. What am I going to inherit? And then Jesus is like, bro, I'm going to the cross. He's like, not if I can help it. And by the way, I'm going too. And then, nope, don't know him. Nope, never seen him. Nope, not a part of him. And then he walks away. And then Jesus comes back and he's like, okay, maybe I can do this. Jesus was faithful with his, his apostles even after the undertaking, and he's going to be faithful after this undertaking with you too. And he tells us that. John 14, 16 through 18, 
And I'll ask my Father, and he will give you another helper, which is the Holy Spirit, right? To be with you forever, not just for a time. He says, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him, you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. And then verse 18, I will not leave you as orphans, I will come to you. And so we have to view this life as a journey, Christians. We have to understand that our sanctification is a process. We have to understand that our faith was meant to be lived out day by day, step by step, and that God gloriously works in that, through that, and he also is faithful after that. We have to remember that this is promised to us. I want you to think back just for a minute to those inventors I started this whole sermon with. I told you about those inventors who did all that stuff. Imagine if they had given up because they didn't get the results that they wanted sometime along that path. And also remember that they didn't give up and now we have all the benefits because of their faithfulness, because of the accomplishments that was happened through them and all of those things that they did, none of those things were promised. But John says, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you that I go to prepare a place for you, or I wouldn't have told you that. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and I will take you to myself. And that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I'm going. And then Revelation is the fulfillment of it. Revelation 21, 1 through 7, I'm going to paraphrase. But basically what he says here is, Jesus is going to come back. Everything that we know and see to be true in reality right now is going to be wiped away. There's going to be a new heavens and a new earth. And he's going to take his bride to be with him forever. He's going to wipe away every tear from every eye. He's going to restore his people. He's going to build his new uh, earth and his new city. And he's going to say, uh, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eye. He says, behold, I'm making all things new. He says, to the thirsty, I will give from the spring of water without payment. Verse seven, to the one who conquers, he will have a heritage and will be, I will be his God and he will be to me a son. And so Matthew 24, 13 tells us, that the one who endures to the end will be saved. So not only we can be steadfast, we must be steadfast. We must be steadfast despite private hostility, despite public hostility, but we can be steadfast because God is steadfast through the undertaking with his people and after the undertaking with those same people. What I'm telling you this morning is Nehemiah shows us in the Old Testament that we can have confidence in our perseverance because Jesus has already persevered for us. But we have to take that faith one step at a time. And so I'm going to end with this poem. Half of it I found. 
Half of it I wrote. Whatever half you like best, that's the half I wrote. I'm just kidding. Ready? One step won't take us very far. We've got to keep on going. One truth will not maturity make. We've got to keep on growing. One word won't tell them who he is. We've got to keep on talking. One act won't do it all, my friend. We've got to keep on serving. Yes, he's the one who once for all did die upon the tree. It's only by his sacrifice that we are all made free. But called us to his work he did to make his glory known. All authority has he and rules he from his throne. So do today what work he gives with gladness in your breast. For one day soon the king will come and grant your soul sweet rest. Let's pray. God, our Father in heaven, we thank you that you 